people are making assumptions for people's actions based on their own experiences growing up in their own cultures. So we assume that someone who keeps asking questions doesn't know how to make decisions for themselves or doesn't know how to take action or take ownership. But the reality is that this person just grew up with this senpai higher type of relationship style where keeping someone in the loop is actually a really important part of the culture and the procedure. So yeah, just being able to step back and as you said, just look at it as, in terms of facts and be like, okay, this is a fact and this is, there's a pattern here happening where every single person on my team is also emailing me. Maybe there's something here that I can learn. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydia Buchelman. My main goal here is to create an easily accessible resource for those who want to develop Japan-specific communication skills, especially in business. While I don't promise to make you fluent in Japanese, I hope that you will walk away from each episode with a skill, piece of information, or shift in mindset that will help you be more effective in your interactions with Japanese business people. Also, a quick reminder to please rate and review the podcast if you enjoy it. It goes a long way to helping others find the podcast and learn more, and it also helps me to keep going as an independent creator. So thanks so much in advance. In today's episode, I get to share a conversation I had with Catherine Gronauer, the founder of Thrive Tokyo. Catherine is a professional trainer, coach, and content writer who helps high-level professionals understand Japanese business culture through training and coaching programs. She's a graduate of Sofia University with a degree in international business and culture, a qualified trainer and change management facilitator, and a wellness coach. Catherine will share more about her background and the mission of her company in the interview, so be sure to stick around to hear more. But first, let's go over a little bit of Japanese. In the previous episode, we learned a word that was roughly the equivalent to wasteful or even the phrase, what a waste, in English. Motainai. 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 To learn more about the deeper meaning behind motainai in Japanese culture, be sure to listen to the previous episode with Sera Yun if you haven't already. This week, I wanted to go over a word that comes up briefly in the conversation that may be useful whether you go to Japan for business or travel. Teishoku. 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 In restaurants, teishoku is a set meal that you can order. It's also a very important part of Japanese food culture, though, as it represents a way of eating that's well-balanced. It will usually consist of a main dish, a few side dishes, rice, and soup. Eating small amounts of various nutritious foods in the right proportions is supposedly one of the reasons that the traditional Japanese diet is associated with health and longevity. Of course, if you're consistently ordering teishoku that have fry foods as the main dish, I'm sorry to inform you that you may not reap the same health benefits. But without any further delay, let's get into today's episode. Hello, everybody. My name is Catherine Gronauer. Uh, my company is called Thrive Tokyo, and I help people learn how to live in Japan and work with Japanese people. And I do that through training and also coaching. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you do? Like, what does your day look like as a trainer and building these communities? 
Oh goodness, my my days look very different um, every single day, or I guess maybe even week to week. So depending on the projects that I'm working on, sometimes I might have projects where I'm going to a corporation and I'm doing a series of cross-cultural training, you know, workshops with groups of people. A couple of weeks ago, I actually did one for about a hundred people via Zoom, and that was about a couple hour uh, seminar. So sometimes I'm doing like seminar or workshop related uh, training, Um, but then there's other times where I have, you know, one-to-one coaching clients too. And depending on, you know, the structure of how we're working together, I might do either like, I like to call them VIP days. So, you know, one-to-one VIP days where we can just kind of get into the nitty gritty and fill in any cultural gaps that they might be having. Or I do kind of like a series of coaching with them over the course of time. So we might meet up like once every week or every other week to check in and help them through their transition. So yeah, the, the kind of the medium of how I, you know, deliver information shifts depending on who I'm working with. But I would say like the overall content itself is really around like cultural assimilation and cross-cultural topics. So then do you usually end up working with people pretty early on in their journey coming to Japan? I wish I did, Lydia. (laughs) I wish I did. Uh, My most ideal situation, which actually right now I've been in the process of creating kind of like an onboarding solution concept because the, the biggest problem is that a lot of people don't have continued support after they've moved to Japan. So, you know, companies will either invest or not invest in in bringing people to Japan. So they'll, they'll get someone to come here, but then there's really nothing in place to help them stay thereafter. And, you know, usually people reach out to me once they're already very frustrated and, you know, they've, they realize they actually need someone to talk to you about whatever struggles are going through. So I think what's been uh, really challenging about my particular industry, or at least for me, is even if I meet someone who's just arrived, if they don't think that they need help yet, I can't really help them until they have a problem and then contact me later. Um, And then you have the other side, which is, you know, the companies might say, oh, no, we're we're fine. We're covered because we already have we're we're at least doing cross-cultural training. So that that's enough. But the thing is, the person who's coming to Japan might not need help or they might come across roadblocks like a, a couple months after they start living here. So I think that kind of like continued support is really important over the course of time as people go through lots of changes and shifts. But yeah, I would say like as as far as how things are set up right now, um, I tend to meet people after they've been here for a little while and had their own experiences and they need to kind of clear up some things with somebody. So why do you think there's this lack of continued support for these people coming to Japan? Is it just because logistically speaking, companies maybe don't have the resources to continually try to help these people just with their everyday problems? Is it because they assume that it only takes a couple of weeks to get used to living in a new country? What do you think that is? I think it'd be, it could be a combination. So there are some cases where a company just doesn't ha- necessarily have a budget for you know anything long-term, or even if they had a budget, they might not even have the extent of the budget that you would need to get someone set up. So they might have like internal HR systems that are helping with visa processing and you know those types of things. But I also think like the companies that do have a budget, they 
probably don't notice the the problems that might be happening because most individuals go through what we call a honeymoon phase. So there's kind of like these four different stages of cultural transition into living in a new country. And that's any country. It's not just Japan. So the initial stage people go through is this honeymoon phase where they kind of, it's kind of like you're on vacation and you're just like reaping the benefits of the excitement of being in a new location. So you're trying all the great restaurants and you're, you know, exploring all the different towns and you're just noticing all the different and cool things that are, you know, interesting to you. So I think if that's happening over the first couple months that someone is living in a new country, then if their company is saying, hey, how, you know, how are things going? They're almost always going to say, oh yeah, Japan's great. You know, everybody's so nice. The city's so clean. You know, the food's great. Like, you know, this is, this is awesome. But uh, the problems might not actually happen until maybe six months later. And, you know, people might not be that transparent in telling their HR um, company that they're actually not doing very well. Or in some cases, maybe their spouse is really not doing well. And that's not something that kind of gets across or is communicated internally to HR. So, um, yeah, I would say like it could be for different reasons, but I would say those are probably the two. It could either be resource related or it could just be not really identifying where the the trouble might actually arise. I can't remember the number specifically off the top of my head, but I did read some research a while ago talking about how a huge number of um, expatriates who have to repatriate just because they get so burned out in the country. It's because of the spouse, because the spouse cannot, they don't have a life at all. They don't have work or a life there. At least the one spouse has a life at work, but the spouse, the other spouse has nothing. They just were brought here with nothing to receive them. So I can see how that would be especially challenging. It's almost surprising that there isn't a whole lot of awareness around that particular situation. Yeah, that's a really great point. And that's actually, so, you know, going back to the concept of the the honeymoon period and, you know, there's different phases people go through. So there's the honeymoon period and then there's like culture shock and homesickness. And then there's, then after that maybe comes adaptability or people kind of sort of develop their own routine. But, you know, point being that the person who's coming here for work and the person who is a spouse, they are going through those phases at very different rates. So, you know, a professional who comes here who has, you know, a whole set of colleagues they can interact with, they have a purpose for being here, they have work that they know what they have to do, they might stay in the honeymoon phase for anywhere from three months to an entire year, you know, to experience all the seasons of being in Japan. But someone like a spouse who comes here and has no friends, has no purpose for being here, has no routine kind of set up for themselves, they might go from honeymoon phase to depths of despair um, just within, you know, six weeks to two months. So you have one person in the relationship who's like really struggling and the other one's fine. And they kind of can't really like relate to each other or, you know, understand each other's sides of the um, experience. So yeah, I would definitely say that's a, that's another issue. And then the spouse who happens to be struggling sooner is the one who also doesn't have the social support built in from their community. So that would be especially challenging. So then you said that the honeymoon period, at least for the working spouse, is often three months to a year in your experience? It can really depend on the person. And I would say like, I I think that what contributes to how long you'll be in a honeymoon phase depends on 
a couple things like what is your reason for being in Japan? So if you're here for work, you're probably going to be in the honeymoon phase longer than someone who has no purpose. Um, and also your level of interest in the culture and you know the language and just being in Japan in and of itself. So I met one person who was here, she said that she was in the honeymoon phase for two years. And so she was already really interested in Japan. She was already starting to learn the language, you know, back in her her hometown. And so she was really just someone who wanted to be immersed in the culture and work here. So for the first two years of going through, you know, all of the seasons in Japan and then repeating it one more time over, that was like her whole honeymoon phase. And yeah, I've met, you know, other people who are the the complete opposite, you know, again, someone like a spouse who's just like, I don't know why I'm here. My, my, my partner is traveling all the time anyway. So they're, they're never home <laughs> and, you know, and I'm stuck here by myself and I have nothing to do every single day and it takes time to make friends. Right. So, you know, those things like friendships or learning a language, uh, those are things that take time and it doesn't necessarily happen fast enough compared to the experience that people need in terms of getting their needs met. So yeah, those are some things that contribute to how long people might stay in the honeymoon phase. Awesome. Thank you for digging into that a little bit. I was very interested to hear your perspective on that. But could you please tell us a little bit more about your journey in Japan? Uh, I read your book and it was a lot of fun, especially for somebody else who had a similar journey with, I guess, body image, food, weight, things like that, but in South Korea. So a little bit different, but kind of a little bit of a similar journey. So you talked about how the lifestyle you discovered in Tokyo had a very strong impact on the way that you live your life, even to this day. So can you please tell us a little bit more about what you learned specifically about health and wellness living in Japan? Yeah, I would say like probably at the end of the day, the biggest takeaway is that I really believe that your environment is what affects your, you know, physical, mental and emotional health. So, you know, choosing the right environment and making sure that you're setting up your lifestyle in a way that is, you know, contributing to each of those factors, that's the number one. And so I think that really you know, when I came to Japan, I had lost a lot of weight. And I think that part of it was because of learning about, you know, diet and, you know, wellness in general. But the other part was just, you know, being so excited to being in a place that I felt really matched um, a lot of how I, you know, I wanted to live. And so, you know, even though I started my business doing health coaching, kind of with the idea of helping people with with weight and work-life balance and those types of things, I think that that's helped me relate a lot to people who are going through cultural transition uh, struggles, because they're actually in an environment that is maybe not meeting um, some of the needs in terms of trying to create a lifestyle that they really enjoy. But yeah, just going back to my own personal experience, um, I was really struggling with my weight before coming to Japan. I actually moved from Florida to Connecticut to go to boarding school. And just being like in the middle of a nowhere <laughs> where it was really cold all the time and very dark, that was probably a bigger shock for my body and for just my mental health than moving from the United States to Japan. <laughs> so yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. You can like be in the same country and just have like a very, you know, I, w- I would consider living in Connecticut in itself to be a very different kind of like cultural experience than living in Florida. So uh, yeah, there is just 
a lot of things that I felt weren't really like meeting my needs there. And, you know, my only coping mechanism was just eating a lot, but I was also exercising a lot too. And I was, you know, felt like I knew a lot of information about health, but the things that I was trying and implementing weren't really uh, helping in any way. So it, it kind of became like, like information overload on like all these things that you could do for your health and your wellness, but just like not really finding that they were meeting uh, the needs that I had. And I think the primary thing I realized through living in Connecticut in the cold, dark winters there, I was like, look, I cannot, like if I'm gonna go anywhere, I have to be in a city. Like I have to have some type of activities I can do. I wanna have this freedom of, you know, being able to explore anything that I want to do at any point in time, regardless of the weather. And uh, I just automatically knew that the the right environment for me would be something where I had a little bit more opportunities to do things. So that was kind of the, the first time where I was thinking about going to a place like Japan or just any place in the U.S. that had uh, like a major city. So yeah, when I came to Tokyo, I was like, wow, this is really great. I don't have to get stuck on campus doing everything in one spot. Like I, you know, the whole city is your, your oyster and yeah, in the process of learning about health um, as well, I was hearing essentially the same health concepts from a scientific perspective, but they were present, the information was presented in a different way. Um, more from like an Eastern holistic health perspective. So talking about things like seasonality and, you know, things that are more tangible and and understandable, like if your body is hot or cold or, you know, foods that you eat, does it make you feel warm? Like if you have ginger, it makes you feel warm. But, you know, if you have a a cold drink, you're going to feel cold. So it's like just these, these things that are like really easy to relate it kind of helped drive how I was making food decisions, um, you know, by thinking about things like seasonality and like how you want your body to feel. And also just, you know, things like the teishoku or the Japanese traditional set meal, like things like that, like you're, you know, they're, they're still talking about things like protein, carbs, and calories, and, you know, those types of scientific things, but the way that they're eating and the way that they're they're having portions of food is very different from like how you would do things in America. So the execution of the information or how we interpret the information and what we do with the information was just very different. And so, yeah, those were the things that I found really fascinating. And I thought that like just hearing things from a different angle was what kind of helped me find what worked best for my body. So yeah, I would say like in a nutshell, that's kind of the story there. But the biggest takeaway again would just be like, you know, making sure that you are either in the right environment for yourself, that's really fulfilling you in each of those areas of your health. Or if you're not in an environment that you feel is the right one for you, how can you actually make adjustments to your lifestyle to kind of counterbalance the needs to make sure that you're getting your needs fulfilled? Yeah, I think that's such a great point. Uh, understanding what type of context is the right fit for you is very important because people who, especially if they use food for comfort, it can be so easy to try to compensate for things in your life by eating more. It's the same with alcohol, smoking, anything that your body craves or uses to kind of self-soothe. So at least in my experience, especially if you're moving abroad, being aware of what you used to comfort yourself and then being aware of what you can do to alleviate the stress associated with being in a new context is very important. So thank you for bringing that up. 
Yeah, absolutely. When people are coming to live and work in Japan, why do you think it's so important to take the time to really think about health and wellness in particular? Because there's so many things to worry about when you're moving abroad. <laughs> it's almost unending. Yeah, that's a really great question. I think because people are going through that initial honeymoon stage, well, I would say like there's two things happening when people first move. There's the honeymoon side of things where it's like you're exploring and everything's really interesting, but there's also what I call the adulting side, <laughs> which is you're trying to relearn how to do just very simple things that you've been doing for a very long time, like in your, in your hometown or where you're coming from. So things like how to do your laundry, how to like cook in your kitchen using different types of appliances, how to do your grocery shopping, just those different things. It's like, it's a, a lot of fatigue that I think is developed like very early on, but because people are in the honeymoon phase, they don't really realize how much fatigue they're, or how much, you know, energy they're expending trying to learn how to do everything in Japan. And the thing is, when it comes to your health and wellness, I think health and wellness is really about things like connection. So like finding your community of people or things uh, related to your routine. So, you know, if you're the type of person who likes to do yoga, like where's your yoga studio going to be here in Tokyo? And how can you make sure that you're developing that into your routine? Because I think since people are going through that honeymoon phase, it's assuming that lasts for a few months, all of a sudden you're in a state of fatigue, you're, you're going through culture shock. And on top of that, you haven't found your yoga studio. You haven't made connections with friends or other people who are also going through the same experiences of living in Japan. And so that kind of like safety net that I guess you would need from a health and wellness perspective might not be there. And it's going to take time to try to figure out how to do those things as well. So that's why I think it's so important to really understand what the, the needs are for health and wellness when you're coming to a new location. And I think like as soon as you arrive here, if you can get some of those things set up into place, they're going to be the things that are really going to help through the tougher times when people are going through work-related stress or anything else that might come from culture shock. Yeah, I think that's a great way to explain it. Of course, you want to ride the honeymoon phase as high as you can, as long yeah. as you can, but you do need something to catch you when you come off of it. Otherwise, you will crash and maybe burn. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So what really motivated you to actually go out and start your own business, Thrive Tokyo? So for me, it was a, a couple of things, and I actually didn't start my business as Thrive Tokyo. So I started my business, I wanted to be a health coach, and I created this company called Girl on Bliss. I don't know how I came up with that name. It was just like something that came up one day where I was like, oh, like I felt like when your health and wellness is so great, you kind of feel like you're floating above cloud nine. Like that was kind of what I was thinking. So I was like, oh, girl on bliss, like someone who's like above cloud nine is, is the concept I came up with. And so I started doing things like, um, you know, just talking about those health concepts and um, I wanted to help people with health and wellness. And I think what helped me get started was that I was already, I already got certified to do health coaching because I knew that I wanted to get this information out in some way. But also I found out simultaneously at my company, uh, we had a change in director and I found out that I wasn't really going to have any opportunity to move up 
in the company unless I moved to like a different or office or got re- relocated to a different location. So it was kind of like a turning point where I was like, okay, well, I don't really see any career progression opportunities in the company I'm at. And I already have this cert- health certification and I want to do this anyway. Maybe this is a good opportunity to try this because if I was to switch companies, I might wind up having to start like at an entry level position in just like another industry. <laughs> and it seemed like it wasn't really as, I felt like it was equally risky to try to find another job in another industry and start entry level versus like trying to start your own business. And I was like, you know, if, after a couple of years, it doesn't work out, I can still just try to get another job in a, in a different industry anyway. So I think that was just kind of my mentality is that uh, so much goes into the decision about trying to start your own business. But for me, I kind of felt like the 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 fact that my work uh, career progression wasn't going in the direction I wanted it to, it kind of helped me give that little push that I needed and also feel like the the risks were kind of equal either way. So while you were starting this company, were there any struggles or opportunities that you encountered that you think might be unique to Japan? Yeah, so I I think some of the struggles that I had, I think were probably just related to anybody starting a business. So I think initially, like I was going through things like imposter syndrome or, you know, just trying to like figure out how to do business, you know, like how do you create a website or how do you create a marketing plan or, you know, what kind of content medium do you want? Do you want to do writing? Do you want to do, you know, podcasting or, you know, YouTube or like, how do you put yourself out there? And, you know, I remember being very naive when I started, I was like, oh yeah, in three months, I'm going to have like a full list of clients and, you know, be making more money than my previous company. It's not, you know, all I have to do is just tell them I'm doing it and they'll come. And that was definitely not the case. (laughs) So it took a little, it took pretty much, you know, a lot longer time than I had expected, you know, really having to develop relationships with people and, you know, those kind of things. Um, having said that, I think uh, when I first started, I wanted to have a, a digital business. So I was really like taken by that, you know, tagline. You hear people say like you can work from anywhere, and you know you can have like a mobile business. I, I was really like captivated by those those wor- words, especially as someone who you know likes to explore other cultures. And you know, I think at the time I wasn't really sure how long I wanted to be in Japan, so I thought having like an online business would have made it easier for me to make other decisions with my lifestyle. But, you know, it was getting hard trying to connect with people abroad because I was having, you know, clients who are located in places like Germany and Australia and like, you know, the U.S. and the time zones are all different. And also the the things that they're dealing with, like their own grocery stores and materials and different items that they have or resources that they have available are just very different. And it's not something that I could like help them with directly, I felt. So I was like, you know what? Okay. I kind of came to this point where I was like, look, I've been in Japan for this long. I think I'm going to stay here longer. Let me just go ahead and try to work with people locally. And so the, the thing that I found was kind of like the challenge of working with people directly in Japan is just that people didn't know how to do their grocery shopping here. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, I would say like that's probably the unique point is that the people I was working with, they knew what they wanted for their health or they knew what their health goal was, but they didn't really have the resources of how to do it. Cause they're just, there was just such a learning curve around, 
you know, how to even shop at a place, how to even use your kitchen, how to, you know, find the exercise, you know, facility or location that you want to go to. There was just a lot more like fundamental issues that they were having. So I think at least for me, that was kind of the thing that I found, like, I wouldn't know if you would call it like a challenge per se, but it was definitely the thing that I felt was unique to helping people in Japan was just trying to get them up to speed on how to live here. And would you say that the issues in the grocery store are kind of the most common or the most universal issues that people face? Just those literally just getting the food you need to survive. (laughs) there's a couple things. I mean, most people like one woman who I, she asked me for help with like grocery, grocery store shopping. And she has been living in Japan for seven years. And I was like, like, what have you been eating for (laughs) the last seven years? And she said, well, you know, basically it's not necessarily that they, they don't know how to shop there. It's just that they're really only living within a, a very small limitation. Like maybe they're only making pasta with tomato sauce because that's all they can identify. Or maybe what they want to do is they want to bake things like bake a lasagna or bake a whole chicken. But, you know, because Japan doesn't really use ovens, like ovens is not really a traditional part of the way people cook here. They're only finding like very thin slices of meat that you can use for stir fries or hot pots. And so it's a combination of like, only being able to identify like a limited amount of things and also the cooking medium that people want to use. They're not finding the products that are the right for that type of medium, the right ones for the type of medium. So yeah, I would say like the, the common, you know, challenges that they have in the store is just around that. And also I think at at some point people have explored eating Japanese food too And they kind of want to know, like, what have they been eating? Like, what have they been eating at this restaurant? Like what, you know, maybe you're eating something like a daikon or something, but you don't know what a daikon is when you actually go to the store or, you know, common issues you hear around things like milk, like you thought you bought milk, but you actually bought drinkable yogurt. So yeah, just things like that, unpleasant surprises, you know, putting drinkable yogurt in your coffee. Yeah, I would say that those are kind of the common things. So some people come because they just want to know how do I source what I want for my own diet and the things I'm used to. But then there's other people who are like, okay, how can I like take this to the next level and understand what other things are in these stores? Besides food, grocery shopping, those kind of basic necessities, are there any other common pitfalls that people moving to Japan pretty commonly encounter? Yeah, I would say like maybe the, the, the common three things, and I think we've touched on each of them a bit up to this point, is the, the primary thing would definitely be the language. So people come here and try to get assimilated, and then they wait until they're settled to start taking Japanese lessons, for example. And then it's going to take time for people to get, you know, survival Japanese under your belt. So I would say like things like the the language, like basically you're getting your survival Japanese way beyond when you actually needed it, because you're probably going to need survival Japanese as soon as you arrive. So that's like one big pitfall. The other thing um, I mentioned before, too, was about friendships. So friendships are also something that take a while to develop. So, you know, it's always a little awkward or nerve wracking to go to a group and try to meet people for the first time. And the first time you meet people, you just kind of, you know, get to know people's names and that's kind of it. So you have to really put yourself out there to go to an event like 
at least three times just to see the same faces and get to know who people are and then try to ask someone if they want to go have coffee with you so you can develop some friendships. And because because those things take time, you don't want to delay starting it too. So again, don't wait three to six months of just going through your routine of living in Japan before you start trying to make friendships because it's going to take an additional time to create that as well. So I'd say that's pitfall number two. And maybe the last one I would just say is probably diet related. So I think this is maybe not necessarily like, I don't think it's something people think of when they come here, but yeah, if people are used to having a diet where, you know, you're living in the U S and you're vegan or ketogenic diet or whatever it is. And then you come to a country where like most of the things available are white rice and, you know, noodles, that's a really big, you know, shock on shock for people is, you know, just trying to figure out how to navigate things where they feel again, it's like being able to feel like you have control over the lifestyle that you want to have, right? I think when you're not used to some things, you know, you want to have control over what food you're eating, you know, it's, it's sometimes those things might not always be available to you. So yeah, I would just say like the, the other pitfall is just trying to find out like where you can find the resources that you need for your own particular diet that you're, you're looking for and just being aware of, you know, how your daily food intake might change just coming and living in another country. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause there is a pretty strong perception among people who have an interest in Japan or learning a little bit about Japan that the Japanese diet is, oh, it's super healthy. And if you move to Japan, you'll just lose a lot of weight and be super healthy. Like everyone else in Japan is apparently super healthy. And (laughs) unfortunately, if you live next to a bakery and you don't want to go grocery shopping, you're just Mm going to go buy food at the bakery. So (laughs) you have to be intentional if you want to have a healthy lifestyle in Japan. Yeah. yeah, I think intentional is a really great way to put it because the thing is you can find really healthy food. Like if you ate the traditional Japanese teishofu, like at least a couple times a day, like lunch and dinner, like maybe a lot of traditional families would, then yeah, you would have a very well-balanced diet. But if you aren't really, you know, making those options and you're just going to the ramen shop or, you know, going to get katsu or something like that, I think it's like, it's just really easy to be unhealthy, but it's, it's easy to be healthy, but it's also really easy to be unhealthy. So you just have to know like where to, to look, I think is the point and not assume that the only things you can have are just noodles and rice because <laughs> there are other things that you can have. So yeah, I just think for most people who are here, like they're, they're only like seeing just kind of like those fast food related things or the things that you would find in a kombini. And uh, that's maybe the extent to what they think they can have for their diet. Which it is delicious, but you do need to branch out a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I was just curious about, are there any things that people can do to try to set themselves up for success before they even head to Japan? Of course, learning the survival Japanese is something they should at least do. But in terms of the other two pitfalls, friends and diet, do you have any suggestions for setting yourself up for success before you even get on the flight? Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned the, the learning the Japanese one. Like even if you're on the plane and you just have like a little mini booklet that says like Japanese phrases, like that would be really helpful (laughs) off from the, from the get-go. I think the other things. So again, I think it's pretty straightforward. I think for, you know, meeting people, I think my recommendation, if, if a person's coming who is a professional is that they try to make friends outside of work. 
I think that the common pitfall for a professional is that they just get used to seeing people at their work. But the thing is, the people at work are not necessarily going to be like your buddy, buddy friends, you know, like you might go out for drinks with them, you know, uh, when you first arrive and you might make really good connections, but you definitely want to have friendships outside of work. And so I think like, you know, making sure that you just try to, you know, spend your weekends to go do some type of activity where you can connect with other people outside of work is really important. I've met people who kind of become a workaholic because they come to Japan and then they start going to the office. And then next thing they know, you know, they've been trying to connect with their own friends back home and, you know, they're maybe working overtime just to like do work with another time zone. And they're just spending so much time at work that they haven't really made the connections outside. And it gets harder and harder to like muster up the courage to to go. I think when you're in the honeymoon phase, it's really easy to just meet people. You're like, hey, I'm new here, you know, and like, what's up? But like six months later, it's kind of, it's hard to go out of your comfort zone to connect with people. So yeah, you know, in terms of resources, there's so many opportunities people can look into, you know, the simplest thing would be something like meetup.com where they can just, you know, find a bunch of events that are happening where they can go participate in activities that they really enjoy. And, you know, they can meet people in the process. So yeah, just, you know, and also even just like Facebook event pages or, you know, LinkedIn event pages. I think there's just so many opportunities and organizations that people can get involved with. And the one for diet, I would say diet is probably a little trickier because I think there are definitely going to be situations where like maybe you like you're only going to have Japanese food available to you, of course. But I think just knowing from the get go that there are locations outside of a regular Japanese grocery store where you can find the things that you're looking for. And there's also, you know, support communities, too, for for people who have the same interests. So again, like if you are vegan and you're coming to Japan, like you can find a vegan meetup group and, you know, meet people and then also explore all of the vegan cafes in, in Tokyo together. So it's a way of, you know, uh, what is the, the phrase? Killing two birds with one stone. <laughs> yeah. So um, not, a, not a good vegan phrase though. Yeah, so. not a good vegan phrase. Maybe I should come up with something else for that. But yeah, yeah, just just things like that. I think uh, just knowing, as long as you know that they, they are available, the resources are available to you and you can find people who are also interested in those same things. I think that could probably provide a lot of comfort. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And that reminded me of, I think it's, have you read the book, The Power of Habits? Atomic Habits. Okay. The one by, I think his name's James Clear. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that just reminded me of how important it is when you want to make new habits to kind of make a break between your trigger and what you do after that. So when you move abroad, all of your old triggers are gone. So you're starting fresh. So it can be an opportunity to start good habits, but it also means that everything you do early on sets those new triggers. So yeah, yeah, I think it's important I mean, to be intentional. Yeah, I think like that's the appeal of living in another country is that you can completely reinvent yourself. Like if if you have had this certain way of living that you've wanted to explore, like you you can it's like you're reset resetting everything. Like you could really, you know, partake in the the activities and the interests that you might have been envisioning. But uh, again, uh, as you said, you don't really have the triggers set up. So just trying to establish like what are the initial goals that you would have for for coming here. So, you know, maybe like an initial goal would be, okay, within the first six weeks of moving to Japan, I'm going to attend 
X amount of networking events. And uh, within those, I'm going to pick one of the organizations I like, and I'm going to make sure I go to at least three more beyond that so I can see the same faces and actually like make, make a connection. So yeah, setting some type of goal and then like maybe even putting it on the calendar and signing up and then trying to figure out how that can create the triggers for you so that you can really make sure that those things are fulfilled because they're going to help a lot way, you know, down into the journey. So then we've been mostly talking about things that tend to crop up early on in your journey to assimilating in Japan, but are there any longer term struggles that tend to come further down the line for people? Yeah, I would say like maybe longer term, I would say for professionals. So one thing I see, um, that is a typical struggle is someone will come and start working at their company and they're like really excited and very gung-ho about, you know, being innovative and, you know, uh, making friends and like making an impact and making a difference in their company. And then like six months down the line, they're like, wait, I've proposed all these new ideas. We have all these ways that things could be more efficient, but they're just kind of, my ideas are falling on deaf ears or people are just nodding their head and we're not really moving it ahead with things. And I think um, a lot of frustration comes out of that because there's a combination of feeling like they're not being heard or acknowledged, but then there's also the frustration where they're seeing like things done a certain way that they don't agree with. And so one thing I see that happens kind of long-term is that there are people who get to a place in their mindset where they feel like there's a lot of things wrong with everybody else (laughs) except for them. So, you know, I I remember talking to a guy who said, oh yeah, like, you know, these Japanese people, they just need to be more confident. They need to speak up. They need to go for whatever, you know, the jobs that they want or, you know, they need to stop asking me questions and take more leadership or ownership. And these are kind of like the same phrases that you hear person to person. It's always something coming up. And I think the challenging thing for me is that I can't really help someone when they're in that state of mind because they've, they don't recognize that there's something to learn in the particular situation. So I tend to have to wait until they've kind of gone beyond that phase and they've maybe seen the same issues enough times to where they realize, okay, wait, maybe, maybe I'm doing something wrong, or maybe there's something I can learn, or maybe, you know, maybe it's not just this person. Cause I'm seeing the same issue with these other people too. Maybe there's like a common way that they're thinking. So I, I would say like the long-term things are just the accumulation of seeing like different types of you know, work procedures that they might necessarily agree with. And that kind of like creates like a a mountain of frustration later on. And, you know, people just kind of, I don't know how to, how to phrase it, like sign off, you know, everybody else. And they create kind of like a them versus me type of scenario. I would say like, that's definitely like a long-term effect that you would see. And, you know, there's people you meet who are in Japan. There's always someone who's like, really having issues with Japan. And then people are like, why are they still here if they're having like issues with Japan? But I would say it's like one of the phases, right? It's it's this phase where it's like, okay, wait, like these are, you know, I don't like this procedure, but I always like to find out why. Like why, why is this pr- procedure like creating such a, an issue? There's just different ways of accomplishing work procedures. So, you know, not just like, this is how Japanese people do it. And this is how they think, but like, what does this mean for you? And like, how is this impacting your, how you feel and your confidence in the workplace? So, 
Yeah, I'd say that that's probably like the key thing that probably happens later on beyond just assimilation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. So for people in that situation, you mentioned that they really can't learn from it until they become aware that it's an issue. So beyond that, what have you found to be the most effective way for them to cope with those challenges? Because obviously you can't go in and try to fix Japan. That's just not how the world works. So what are some skills that people can try to develop in coping with these kind of long-term stressors? Well, I think I always find, I mean, the solution I personally feel is to do cross-cultural training or coaching to learn about it. So um, I think the primary thing is just to develop empathy because I think that people make a lot of assumptions. Like when you when you see something happening that you don't understand, you make assumptions based on the context that you are familiar with. So for example, uh, I'm just gonna make up a random example. If I go to a country and then someone slams a door in my face, I might think, oh my gosh, this person hates me. They, you know, like they're angry. Like these are, might be the assumptions I'm making about why they're slamming a door. But I might just be in a culture where that's just how people close doors. I don't know. Like, so I think trying to kind of investigate a little bit more about what's happening with the other people and looking at at it as an, a learning opportunity and trying to find a way to collaborate with each other is a really great way to approach things. One thing I heard from a woman, a Japanese woman I thought was really interesting is she said, one of the things that bothers her the most is sometimes there are foreigners who try to explain to her how she should do her job when they don't realize what the other cultural issues are that she's facing. And that of course is coming out of frustration because people don't see the full picture and they understand. But she said a better way would be if they could share with me that they recognize my challenges. So that's for step one is just having the cultural sensitivity to understand what the challenges are that are being faced. And, you know, in a, in a polite way or a friendly way, just saying, you know, this is the goal that I'm trying to achieve. Is there an alternative way or an alternative solution that we can come up with together? So it's more of a collaborative approach at problem solving instead of this kind of like director (laughs) style. It's more of like an empathetic, like partnership to try to solve issues. I think that that's probably going to be a better way to approach things that would really be helpful for everybody involved. This isn't something that I've done a lot of research on, but I have seen some research surrounding, I guess, almost things like uh, sensitivity training, cross-cultural training, sometimes having a negative effect in terms of people's kind of over-applying the concepts they've used and moving more into stereotyping other people Mm. instead of kind of what you were talking about, being empathetic, trying to see things from other people's perspectives in a more nuanced way. Has that been something that you've encountered at all or have people for the most part really been able to develop those more um, holistic, empathetic skills in dealing with people from other cultures? I don't, I wouldn't say that I've really come across something where people become like stereotypical, but I think one thing that I do think is challenging about doing cross-cultural training in general is that you do have to stereotype 
cultures in order to explain how they're different. So when I say like, uh, you know, Japanese people are indirect speakers or they like to use nuances and stuff like that, that might not be the case for every single individual Japanese person who you meet, because especially if you're working in an international environment, the Japanese people you're working with might actually be people who have lived abroad and worked in other you know, global companies. Uh, they're clearly people who have learned English enough to, to communicate in, in you know, English. So they have some type of sensitivity to like an international environment that you would never come across if you're only meeting a Japanese person who's never learned English and who's never been abroad, you know? So I think what's kind of unfortunate is I, I don't like to stereotype people and say like Americans are this way and Japanese are that way. But in order to really kind of pinpoint the, the common things that you might come across, we kind of have to start up start with the stereotyping from the from the get-go. So I think it's important to kind of explain to people that there are there is a lot of gray zone and that sometimes the experience you have when an individual might be based on the individual person. But there could be like these underlying things that might be happening that happen collectively when uh, Japanese people are together. So that is something I like to point out to people because I don't want them to go and like make, you know, assumptions about every single Japanese person they come across. But just to recognize that each person you come across, you're going to have a, you know, a unique experience based on just who that person is. And then there could be just some underlying things that will be helpful in improving your communication and just getting onto the same page. So then do you have any personal examples of these sorts of communication breakdowns that you think have been due to cultural differences? I would say like one thing, I guess like one concept we could bring up that I think is very different from communication styles is one thing I hear from people who are not from Japan is like, oh, Japanese people, they're weak. They can't make decisions for themselves. And I say, oh, well, what's happening? Like, why, why is that? And it's like, oh, well, my subordinate, they keep like, like I'm CC'd into all these emails they keep asking me questions. They're always asking me permission before they do something. And I'm like, oh, well, there's there's this concept called horensol, like soldan, which is, you know, reporting, notifying, and you know, just basically including your your line manager in the procedures that are happening. And it's kind of like a collective approach to making decisions as a team instead of as individuals. And, you know, most people who come from international or multicultural companies, they really value things like autonomy. Like you just give a person assignment and they take care of it. And there isn't like a necessarily a strong communication around that unless something comes up or, you know, something where the manager actually has to have input on. So I think uh, that's probably one thing that I would say is pretty common is just like how people choose to communicate, not necessarily the, the language structure of communication, but actually the frequency in which people communicate with each other is just very different. And also for that same reason, um, sometimes uh, Japanese people might actually report issues to their manager before they directly resolve an issue with you know an individual and their team and uh, I think one problem from a communication standpoint that a lot of non-Japanese people come across is they feel like people are talking about them behind their back and that's not necessarily I mean technically they are because it's getting you know reported in that way but the thing is 
because of the, you know, structures in terms of the roles, it might not be an individual's place to point out something that might be going wrong. It's actually the manager's place to, to make sure that other people in the team are doing things the right way. So just these little things, I think, are, are really big differences in communication structures. And even it's something very simple, like just, you know, emailing this person before I talk to that other person, but it really makes a very big difference in how people feel. They either feel like they're not in the loop and they want to be, or they feel like they're too much in the loop and they don't know why, and they don't know, you know, how to respond to something when they don't feel like they need to put any input into it. So just some, a very simple concept like hold and so I think is like a very, very, very big cultural difference there. Mm-hmm, definitely for sure. And it's a big difference between, I guess, going in and labeling things in terms of your own culture versus just trying to look at things, like just look at things as facts. Oh, this person is constantly emailing me versus, oh, this person can't figure out anything on their own. So trying to take away the more emotional label and just evaluating things based on facts and going from there. Yeah, people are making assumptions for people's actions based on their own, you know, experiences growing up in their own cultures. So we assume that someone who keeps asking questions doesn't know how to make decisions for themselves or doesn't know how to take action or take ownership. But the reality is that this person just grew up with this, you know, some people higher type of relationship style where keeping someone in the loop is actually a really important part of, of the culture and the procedure. So yeah, just being able to step back. And as you said, just look at it as, in terms of facts and be like, okay, this is a fact. And this is, there's a pattern here happening where every single person in my team is also emailing me. Maybe there's something here that I can learn. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. So if you were chatting with somebody who was planning to go to Japan for business, but they could really only learn one thing about the country or the culture ahead of time, what would you choose to teach them? Oh my goodness. I really have. <laughs> I can't, I can't Sorry. even. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. I think maybe just, maybe the first thing, I guess the first thing would probably definitely be around communication styles. And I know I need to pick one thing, but I feel like communication is such a big topic. Like there's many different avenues that you could cover regarding communication. But I think the first thing I would say is just because someone is speaking in English with you doesn't mean that how they're speaking is the same as where you're coming from. So like, you know, simple thing, like if a Japanese person says in English, oh, that might be difficult. If you translated it to Japanese and it's like, ah, it would pretty much be a no, right? But, you know, so just, I think when someone is communicating with you in English, you don't, you might not have to take it at face value all of the time. And I think that's probably the, the, the primary thing they would need to know going into it. And maybe just being more open to asking open-ended questions when they're communicating with people, because that enables a, you know, foreigner to hear more about what the Japanese person or the other person from another culture is uh, thinking. Whereas if you ask yes or no questions, you know, in a in a, a culture where there is a lot of high context, there's many ways of saying yes and no. So something very simple, like just asking open-ended questions, I think is is a way of creating better communication styles moving forward. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's a great way to sum it up. So I really appreciate you taking the time to explain all of these insights about moving to Japan and thriving in Japan really is the point of the work that you do. But is there anything that we didn't get to touch on today? Anything that comes to mind that you'd like to discuss or share with my audience before we head off for today? I actually feel like we really covered a lot of really great stuff. So we talked about the health end, we talked about cultural assimilation, and we also talked about more of the long-term effects. So yeah, I would say like everyone listening, I think you got a a really good scope today. (laughs) I agree. And also, would you mind sharing a little bit about, just very briefly about some of the services you offer in case people might be interested? Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you're part of a corporation, I can do cross-cultural training sessions uh, for people who are new to Japan. Um, And if you're an individual looking for support, um, I offer different types of coaching-related services. So we can either work together over the course of time to kind of check in and help you with your transition. And part of that could be learning about cultural concepts that you can leverage either in the workplace or outside of the workplace. Or it could be just talking about things like your work-life balance. So what kind of lifestyle do you want to set up for yourself here in Japan? So I would say those are the two uh, primary things that I I can help with. And I have a lot of resources on my website too, which is thrivetokyo.com. So you can come check them out there. All right. We'll be sure to link all of that up in the description of the episode. So be sure to check that out. And thank you so much for your time, Catherine. Yes. Thanks so much for having me. I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation. And please be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode to learn more about Catherine Gronauer and all of the exciting things that she's up to at Thrive Tokyo. If you enjoyed today's conversation, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the messages and information shared in this podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe and leave a rating and review if you enjoy the podcast. And feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. Also, be sure to reach out if you would like to contribute as a guest on the podcast to share your own cultural insights into doing business in Japan. If you'd like to leave a voice message, you can find the link to do that in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confidence you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondo.